Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 and the word of the sovereign Lord reads first of all then I urge that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And from, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself up as a ransom for all, who is a testimony given at a proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles and the faith and truth. A desire that in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This is the word of the Lord. And before we actually get too far into this and I get myself in trouble, I'm going to turn my phone down. <laughs> J. Sidlow Baxter, preacher and evangelist, once said, Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. It has been my firm belief, and continues to be to this very day my firm belief, that the most underutilized gift that God has given to Christians individually and to the church corporately is the gift of prayer. It is the most underutilized gift that God has given us. We, by the grace of God and the blood of Christ, have been given access into the throne room of heaven where we can come boldly in our time of need before God our Father. The veil that separated God and man had been torn from top to bottom at the death of Christ. And as such, we are given direct access because of Christ's finished work to the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God who created the entire cosmos. And we are told by the word of God that we can cast our cares upon him right? because he cares about us. We are told not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. We are encouraged by the word of God to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we are to be praying all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplication. And we are even promised by the Word of God that the righteousness, the righteous cry for help, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. We are given, we are given by God 
himself a gift that wields unimaginable power in the world around us. A power that changes lives and circumstances and even hearts. A power that can change the course of history and works impossible miracles. A power that can break down hardened hearts of stone and lift those up who were crushed under the weight of their sin. It is the gift of being able to come into the very presence of God and to speak to Him and make our requests to Him as His children. And He hears us and He wants to hear from us and He also works through us and our prayers. But sadly, we neglect such a precious, gracious, and powerful gift. It seems we don't realize what we have. And understand, it's not something new. We're not alone in this. It's been this way for centuries. Neglecting the spiritual gifts of, of discipline, the, neglecting the spiritual discipline of prayer, Neglecting the spiritual discipline of prayer is something that every generation has struggled with, and it's something that everyone can slide into. It's something that everyone can slide into because the natural drift in our lives is to drift away from God. No one drifts accidentally toward God. In the same way that ships don't drift naturally into the, the, the port that they intend to reach, we don't naturally drift towards God. We drift away. In fact, we just sang that this morning. What We are prone to what? Prone to wander. We're prone to wander. Now I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We don't naturally drift towards God. And, and no one naturally drifts towards holiness. No one drifts towards holiness. And no one drifts naturally into Bible reading. No one drifts naturally into regular, consistent prayer. No one drifts into regular, consistent, habitual giving. The natural tendency in all of our lives, left up to our own devices, is to drift away from those things. That's why the church is such an important part of the Christian life. Right? It, is, it is because the church is to be the instrument that God is using to grow us and to mature us and to help us to set our sights on the things above and remind us to cultivate in our lives these important spiritual disciplines like prayer. And again, that is why we pray so much here on Sunday mornings. If there's one thing that we will do consistently is, is, is pray. And I want you to know, like, you want to see how much we depend on people? Let a bunch of them not be here and you'll see how difficult things are, right? But in that, one of the things that we, we are faithful to do, no matter who's here, is we pray. See, the first thing I do when I get up, when I get here, when it's dark, I come in here, I turn the lights on, I open the windows, and the first thing I do is I pray. I pray for the message, I pray for you, I pray that God would be glorified. And then after that, after the, the worship team gets here, before they begin practice, they, they pray. They pray for their hearts to be ready to worship. They pray to help you to be ready for worship. And then we, we pray back here before we come out. That's what we're doing. We're back there praying. We're praying that all of our hearts and minds would be in the right place, that all of us would be ready to, to receive the word. And then, as you saw Sarah pray, but Matt typically will pray sometimes two to three times during the worship set. I praise the Lord for that. Right? And then 
And then one of the deacons comes up here and prays for the offering. And then I pray before the reading of the word. And then I'm going to pray one more time before I let you guys get out of here. Right? That's, why do we do that? It's because we want to set an example of what we're supposed to be like as Christians. We continually pray here on Sunday morning to honor God and set the example as a church that you would then be able to imitate in your own life because the church is the pillar and the buttress of the church, right? And, and, and it ought to lead and equip believers in the church and it ought to be equipping you to grow in the spiritual discipline of prayer because we were called by God to be people of prayer. Now, what does that have to do with 1 Timothy in this series, subtitled The Plan for Church and Life? Well, as you know, this letter was written by Paul to the young pastor, Timothy, who was left in Ephesus to fix the things in the church there. And as we talked about, right, the, the Ephesian church had allowed unqualified men to take up leadership in the church, and they began to engage in speculative, false teaching. And that led to theological, a theological slide in the church, which was followed by several behavioral issues inside and outside of the church. You see, when, the church is, when, it, when a church and its leadership is not committed to understanding and defending and teaching orthodox doctrine, when a church doesn't stay connected to the solid theological foundation of the gospel, error and truths and untruths are quickly embraced in the church. Why? because the natural drift of everyone is away from God. And as a result, then, behavioral issues follow quickly. Why? Because we don't naturally drift towards holiness. We drift away from holiness. And so Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to tell him to put an end to the false teaching, and then he's going to encourage Timothy to raise up new qualified leaders in the church, and we're going to see a little bit of that in chapter 3. And then he's going to tell them him to deal with the behavioral issues in the church, which is where we find ourselves in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is where we find out that they, about the behavioral issues that have popped up in the church because of the theological weakness of that church. And Paul is going to give Timothy instructions in, to, to deal with these things. And the first behavioral issue that Paul is going to address in this letter is the issue of prayer. Look at verse 1. What's the first thing he talks about? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That's the very first thing that Paul talks about when he addresses what the congregation needs to do, right? He, he, he first addressed the false teachers. Now he's talking about the congregation. What's the first thing that he addresses? Again, we'll look at it again. He says, I desire that everyone in every place, I mean, that I desire then that in, in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling. Right? He begins and ends his section with prayer. Now, there's, there's a number of things in chapter 2 that he does address, but the first thing that he does in these first 10 verses that Paul deals with is chapter, I mean, is, is, is prayer. Now, there's a number of things that we will unpack over the next couple of weeks in this section, but the very first issue, the first thing that he talks about to the congregation is prayer. He doesn't, he doesn't deal with tithing. By the way, a lot of times when preachers want to get churches back on track, that's probably the first thing they talk about is tithing. He doesn't 
He doesn't talk about buildings. He doesn't talk about what kind of music should be played or sung in the church. He doesn't deal with service times. Should we have one service, two service? I don't like one service. I don't like two services. He doesn't deal with outreach. He doesn't deal with, should we have kids' classes or not? He doesn't deal with the things that we typically would deal with when we're trying to get a church back on track. The very first thing that he deals with as a matter of first priority is prayer. Why? Because a healthy church is a praying church. A healthy church is a praying church. In fact, say that with me. A healthy church is a praying church. If that's all that you remember from this sermon today, I praise the Lord for that. A healthy church is a praying church. A healthy church is one that takes seriously the gift and the tool that God has granted us to wage the warfare that we have in the world. A healthy church understands the value of God's people going before the throne of grace, seeking guidance and intercession and strength and power. A healthy church understands that it was created by God, for God, and belongs to God, and apart from God, it can do nothing. As we're reminded by Jesus when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So abide in me. How do we abide in him? In prayer. A healthy church is a praying church. And so the first issue that Paul deals with regarding to the congregation is prayer, because obviously there were some issues in the prayer life of the church. Now, the second issue that Paul deals with in, in this um, section is the issue of godliness. Notice that he mentions godly or godliness twice in this text. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then in verse 9, he goes, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You see, right behind the issue of prayer, Paul is going to deal with the issue of godliness or godly living or living a godly life. Again, this is something directly connected to the theological and doctrinal strength of the church because a right theology ought to create in us a high view of God. And out of that comes a proper view of ourselves. And a high view of God ought to produce in us, in, produce in us a desire for godliness, a, a desire to live a godly life. When we understand who God is and who we are and what God has done for us, that knowledge of grace, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, ought to drive us to want to live lives that are pleasing to God. And again, we don't pursue Godliness because we're trying to make God love us so that we can be saved, right? We're not, pursu we're not pursuing godliness so that, that God would suddenly, you know, would have favor in his eyes. No, we pursue godliness because we are already loved and we are already saved. Our hearts have been changed and we've been set free from the power of sin. So we can pursue godliness. We, we pursue godliness out of gratitude and a changed heart. This pursuit of godliness is bolstered by a theologically strong church and a committed life of prayer. 
And so what we see in these first two issues is Paul addresses a life of prayer and godly living. And given the fact that these two are both important issues that deserve to be unpacked, and given the fact that I already have a tendency to go long anyway, we're going to address only one of these today. And that's going to be the issue of prayer. Next week, we'll talk about godliness. So again, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1, and Paul says, For I, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now in this part of the text, many people, because of theological hobby horses, will have a tendency to get derailed here. And the reason for that is because they lose track of Paul's main point for this text. You see, people will read this and they will see expressions like, pray for all people. God desires all people to be saved. And what they will do is they will argue that the Bible makes it clear that God is not sovereign over salvation. Because God wants all people to be saved and Jesus gave himself up as a ransom for all people. And they will use this as a proof text to say, ultimately, God isn't sovereign over salvation. That man is the deciding factor in salvation. And all that God can simply do is provide the opportunity for someone to be saved and, and provide the means for somebody to be saved. And hopefully, then man will choose by his own sovereign ability whether or not to accept God's offer of salvation. The problem is, that's not even what this text is about. Right? And as such, it really offers no real support for that position, especially in light of other scriptures like Romans 9 and Ephesians 1, where Paul makes it clear that salvation is 100% of the Lord. This text isn't about that. This text, the point of this text is prayer. That's the focus of what Paul is driving at. This text is about prayer in the church. If we actually look really closely, what we find is about what prayer is, what we ought to be praying for, why we should pray, how we should pray. And a little bit further on, it actually will give us some insight in where we should be praying. In fact, that's why your notes are outlined the way they are, by the way. This text is not aimed at God's sovereignty versus man's free will. This text is about prayer. And again, so many people will focus on the other issue that they lose sight of the main point. They lose sight of that in the context as well. So, let's, so again, let's be really clear. The point of this text right here is prayer. Paul is not explaining the doctrine of election or the scope of, of Christ's atoning work. What Paul is doing, he's calling the Ephesian church back on track by being efficacious and dedicated in their life of prayer. Because as we said before, a healthy church is a praying church. Paul is telling Timothy in detail, you need to tell the members of the church to get their prayer life straight. And in this section, Paul, this section of text, Paul explains what, he explains the who, the why, the how, and again, where. Paul is going to explain what kind of prayers that they need to be praying. He's going to exp explain who they ought to be praying for and specifically what they need to be praying for and the reason why they ought to be praying and how they should be praying. This text, again, is about prayer. 
And it has actually a lot to teach us for here and now. So again, look at verse 1. It says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So notice that Paul just doesn't say, hey, just pray, right? Paul takes the time and actually lists four different um, verbs to describe prayer. Four different ways to be praying for other people. He says that we are to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Paul is saying that you need to be praying in different ways for different things. And so I think it just bears with us to actually look at what, what, he's, what he's communicating here. The first one he says is supplications. What does that even mean? Well, other translations will translate that word as entreaties. Like I think the New American Standard Bible says, calls it entreaties. Right? But, but the idea is the same. A supplication, right? A supplication is, is a specific request for a specific need. It is going before God, praying for something specific for someone. When you make supplication for yourself or someone else, you're going before God and asking a specific need to be met. Lord, I pray that you'd provide the resources that they need. Right? Lord, I pray that you would heal them. They need healing. Lord, I pray that you'd help them get the job. I pray that you would strengthen them. It's, a supplication is simply going before God and praying for something specific, a specific need. Then we come to intercessions. Intercessions where you come before God and make an earnest, urgent, bold appeal for divine action on the behalf of others. A good example of intercession is when you come before God and pray boldly and passionately that God would change someone's heart. That's the way you intercede for someone. An intercession would be, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's going before God. And interceding and getting between them and God and saying, Lord, do this for them. Then you come before God praying that he would intervene in someone's marriage. It's another intercession. Deliver somebody from addiction. Another intercession. Then Paul lists the word prayer. and It's just basically general prayers. It's just simply the general things that we would pray. And then he says to offer prayers of thanksgiving for other people. If there's something that Christians in their life should be always walking in, would be thanksgiving. If there's something that should mark the Christian life, it ought to be thanksgiving. If there's something that marks our prayers, it ought to be thanksgiving. We ought to be continually thankful to God for so many reasons. And we ought to be continually expressing that thanks in prayer. I praise the Lord that just about everyone I hear pray in this church always says, Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for them. The Christian life ought to be marked with continual gratitude. And I say this all the time on grace and truth, but I think it bears repeating. Every human being who's alive today, believer and unbeliever, has more than their share to be grateful for. Every breath we take is a gift from God that we don't deserve. The only thing that any human being deserves is the wrath and judgment of God. That means every day that you live is a gift from God, a merciful, gracious gift from God. That means every person ought to be thankful to God. But then we as Christians have an infinite amount more to be grateful for. The fact of the matter is is that God spared us from our sins 
that he didn't kill us last night in our sleep, but the fact that he has also spared us from the wrath to come because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Our prayers and our life ought to be marked with gratitude. So the kind of prayers that he's urging them to pray are, are these, but I want you to notice who he's praying for. This is important for us to get our heads wrapped around because this is where we can get diverted to very, very easy. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, at first blush, many people say, well, see, Paul is saying, pray for all people, right? Because that's what it says in English, which, by the way, we should, by the way, we should be praying for all people. So don't misunderstand me. That's just a foundational, fundamental truth. We ought to pray for all people. We know that, right? Right. We should be praying for people we know. We should be pray praying for people we don't know. We should be praying for all people, right? I think that goes without saying. But I want you to understand, that's not what Paul is actually getting at here. It's not what he's communicating. Paul is actually making a specific point by saying this. You see, the Greek word that Paul uses here that gets translated as all people actually means all people kinds of people. And this is an important distinction, okay? He's not saying pray for all people generically. I mean, we should, but he's saying pray for all different groups of people. And the reason why Paul makes this distinction is because there are just certain kinds of people, let's just be honest, there are certain kinds of people we tend not to pray for, Okay? It's just, we, we know we should pray for all people, but then there are certain kinds of people we just don't pray for. We know that we should, but we just simply don't. There are just certain types of people we just don't pray for. Like the fact that there are certain kinds of people we tend not to love, though we know that we're supposed to love all people. As the Bible tells us, Paul is saying that we need to pray, not for just all people, but for all kinds of people, because we tend to forget to pray for certain kinds of people. Well, what kinds of people would that be? Well, Paul tells us, he says, kings and those who are in high positions. That's where he's going. Paul is saying we need to be praying for all kinds of people, even those we don't usually pray for, like our governmental leaders. Paul is saying we need to pray for kings and those who are in high positions and understand what Paul when he wrote this, he wrote that at the time that Nero was the Caesar. Nero was the emperor. And he was already pushing back against Christians at the time. Nero was a cruel man, especially towards Christians. And by the way, it was Nero that would eventually have Paul put to death. Paul is saying we need to be praying for him. Paul saying, pray for the kings and leaders. You see, Paul is not saying just pray for everyone generically. You already know that you ought to be doing that. He's saying you ought to pray for those kinds of people that you don't normally want to pray for. You, don't pr you want to pray for those people you don't normally think to pray for, including those, right? Including those who, who harm you. Including those who are considered your enemies. Including those who, who are in power over you and do things that you don't like for them to do. We're not to just pray for those that we love. We're to pray for all kinds of people. And that includes those who have power over us. We individually and corporately need to be praying for our governmental leaders. We need to be praying for the president. 
right? Not just the guy that you used to like. We need to pray for the governor of our state. We need to pray for those in power, right? Even those who are seeking to harm us. We need to pray for those who even seek to persecute us. By the way, this echoes what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus gave us what the radical new life in Christ looks like on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, but, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Do good things to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. This is what Paul's getting at here. That's why Paul is saying this. You need to be praying for those in power. Even somebody like Nero Caesar, who are our enemies, who stand against us, who hate us. Is that who we're praying for? Do you pray for the president and vice president? Do you pray for the members of the Senate? Members of Congress? The governor of California? Tremper Longman, in his commentary, says, this command to pray for those in authority is one of the least heeded of the New Testament injunctions today. Right? Because, because why? Because politics is divisive, right? I mean, you don't have to, I mean, if you live under a rock, you might not notice that, but I mean, you've seen it everywhere on social media and on the news, right? The politics is more divisive than ever, right? And the lines are clearer and sharper, and the rhetoric is even more shrill than it ever has been before. And if people are giving each other reasons not to like each other and pray for each other, there's a lot of that going around, right? But is that us? Do we do, do we heed this command from the scriptures? Are we praying for these people? Because that's what he's calling us to do. I mean, we will post about it on Facebook and Twitter and all of the social media platforms. We will protest against them. We will sign those petitions for recalls. We'll cast our votes to get them out of the office. We will complain to everyone who will listen to us. We'll even campaign against them. But are we doing the one thing that God calls us to do, which is to pray for them? Are we using this awesome, powerful gift that God has given us as a church and individuals in order to lift these people up? Are we praying to God that God would change their hearts? Are we praying that God would, would do, would, they would do God's will in their lives? Are we praying that God would give them supernatural wisdom to rule wisely? Are we praying for them to repent and believe the gospel? I was confronted with this truth years ago when, that when Osama bin Laden was, was killed. Because my first instinct was to rejoice, and I listened to a pastor and saying, he said, he said, I, I take no joy in that. And I thought, wait a minute, Osama bin Laden was killed. And then he just reminded us, it was to love our enemies. And then he said to his whole, like, all the people on the radio, when's the last time you ever prayed for Osama bin Laden? I, I was like, that thought doesn't even fit inside my head. Are we praying for those in power, no matter how we feel about them? Because the truth is, and here's the hard truth, they are there by God's divine appointment. 
Paul says in Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for they, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. All of our leaders are appointed by God himself. All of them. Joe Biden is the president of the United States by the sovereign will of God. AOC is in Congress by God's divine appointment. Senator Ted Cruz, Justice Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court, Gavin Newsom, and even our own Zach Scrivener here in California, whether you voted for any of these people or supported them or were against them, they are all there, every one of them, by the counsel of God's own will and positions of power and leadership for, by God's own hand for His own glory. And as such, then, we have a, an obligation to pray for them. Not only does Paul tell us that we ought to pray for them, but he tells us right, what we hope to accomplish by praying for them. Again, look at the text here. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, all kinds of people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, one of the reasons why we're to be praying for our leaders is so that we can live at peace. It's one of the reasons we can live a peaceful, quiet life. Paul says to pray for these leaders so we can be at peace. Now understand, he's not talking about a life that's absent of difficulty. He's not even saying a life absent of persecution. He is talking about a life where Christians can live at relative peace in the world around them, even though, and, and maybe even under the general protection of the government itself. Tremper Longman writes about this piece and says that Paul is talking about a life lived under the general protection of the civil authorities, which provided a measure of peace and tranquility for the apostle to engage in extensive gospel ministry. Even though that there are people who strongly oppose Christianity, and even though that Paul faced mob violence and arrest because of his faith, if you look in history, there was relative peace in that area, in the Middle East and in Asia Minor during that time. It was called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. And this peace made traveling in safety a common thing. And communicating via letters reliably something that was common. And this led to the gospel exploding all over the known world. You realize that, right? That this happened all at the right time by God's hand at a moment of peace, relative peace in that part of the world, that the gospel exploded. We're here right now because of what Paul did there then. That peace was a direct result, by the way, of the leaders that were in power. And so what Paul is saying here is to pray for them so we can be at peace, live at peace in a way that shines the light of Christ so that we can share the gospel in the world. Pray that we have this peace so we can live openly, dignified lives so that those around us could see Christ in us. And this is particularly relevant for today because we ought to continue to pray that we have peace and a certain sense of security so we can openly spread the gospel. Because what we're seeing around the world 
is a rising anti-Christian attitude, especially in the Western world. There are beginning to be people and even our own government pushing back against Christians. We have, we have been seeing people overtly trying to keep Christians from proclaiming the truth. We are seeing more and more people who are trying to say Christianity is an extremist religion and is dangerous like Islam. And this trend, by the way, is growing, which we see in our, in our neighbors to the north in Canada. Right now, the government of Canada is overtly going after pastors and churches in the name of public health. Just in the last few weeks, four pastors have been arrested and hauled off to jail and mistreated while they were there. Several churches have been forcibly closed. I mean, actually chains on the doors, fences around the property. And so many churches are facing huge fines. One church was fined $85,000 because they wanted to stay open. And even more, the, common, the, the majority of people are beginning to support what the government's doing there. This is in addition to, uh, to pastors being arrested publicly for preaching against sexual sin when they mention things like homosexuality or transgenderism. They're being arrested for that. Right? There's still relative peace in Canada today, but there's a growing persecution against Christians in that country. Right? And, and believe me, that's what we can see on the horizon for us. But what shocks me and what worries me is, is not the persecution so much, but rather is the attitude of so many Christians about it. They see the rising persecution against the church, and they're like, bring it on. Seriously. There are lots of people who have that attitude. They'll say things like, well, you know, persecution's coming anyway, and the church will continue to thrive, you know, even during persecution. Just look at China. Bring it on. We know that persecution's coming. It's a sign of the end times, so bring it on. Right? We know that persecution is coming, but the church will be gone long before it gets, so, gets too bad. Bring it on. Brothers and sisters, if we are wise, and if we are compassionate, and we actually care for other people, we will not be having this attitude of bring on the persecution. We'll be praying, Lord, please give us peace. I mean, I mean, think about this. God can take the, the worst situation and use it for his glory and his good. But you don't pray, Lord, give me cancer so I can suffer that you may be glorified in my suffering. You wouldn't do that personally. You don't pray, Lord, kill my child so I know what true loss is. You don't pray, Lord, bankrupt me and make me destitute so that I can really depend on you. We don't pray that way because it's foolish. We don't pray asking God to keep us, excuse me, we, we pray asking God, please keep us healthy, keep our children alive, and please provide for us. We don't ask for calamity. Now, when calamity does come, we know that God is in control and we lean into him and we trust him during those times. And he can certainly use those times for our good and his glory, but we don't ask for them. We ought not to be cavalier about what's the coming persecution. We ought to be interceding and standing in the gap, praying for peace. We ought to be praying for the ability to live out our faith in the open. Because the real persecution, when it comes, when it comes, there's going to be great suffering. And that suffering 
for, for us, for our children, for our friends and our neighbors. And that persecution is going to be worse for people and generations further down. Now, God can, again, and does use our suffering to accomplish His will and works for those things for our good, but we ought not to be looking and searching for suffering. We shouldn't be looking for trouble. Because believe me, trouble will find us anyway. We ought to be praying and interceding for peace so we can live godly, dignified lives and share the hope of Christ in relative tranquility. The second thing we ought to be praying for is the salvation of others. Again, let me, let me, let me just show you what, what he said again. I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings who are in high, and all who, who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We ought to be praying for all people to be saved. But especially, we ought to be praying for the leaders in power because Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. We were given the Great Commission to do what? To make disciples of all the nations. The church was given to the world, to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Why? To defend and declare the truth so others can repent and believe the gospel. We ought to be praying continually for the salvation of others. We ought to be praying passionately and relentlessly on this. We ought to be praying for hearts to change. We ought to be praying for the gospel to take root. We ought to be praying for people to repent and believe. All of us should be praying for these things. And we should be praying for the salvation of all people and all kinds of people, even our governmental leaders. I'll confess. I'll confess. It wasn't too many times I might have prayed for Barack Obama's real conversion to Christianity. I mean, I prayed a couple times, but it wasn't like earnest, like I was continually doing it. And I, I mean, I regret that. Paul says that he desires that all people to be saved. Again, he uses the same word, which means he desires all kinds of people to be saved, including kings and governmental leaders. One of the things is I think that we lose sight of when we think of the gospel is we always think that the gospel is always for the poor people, that we always think that the gospel is for the regular people. Like when, when, when an addict walks in here, we know that guy needs the gospel. But if Bill Gates walked in here with all his money, would we think, you know, we need to stop that dude and preach him the gospel? For some reason, when we think of people in power, people with wealth, we forget that they absolutely need the gospel. Now, again, this is, text is not, it's not about universalism. And it doesn't prove that God isn't sovereign over salvation. It expresses the truth that we ought to be praying for all kinds of people, including people we don't normally pray for. Because God desires all kinds of people to repent and be saved. God desires all kinds of people, even those who persecute us. Remember the Apostle Paul, the, the persecutor of Christians, even those who harm us. You heard the story about David Berkowitz, right? 
son of Sam, serial killer, got saved in prison. Even those who have power over us and who seem to be trying to destroy our way of life, God absolutely can and will save them if it's His will. We are to be praying for their salvation, which then brings us to the question of why. Well, Paul tells us why. He says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The reason why we ought to be praying for all kinds of people, especially leaders and rulers, it is because it is good. Paul says it is good for us to do this. But how is it good? Well, the first, it's good for those that we pray. It's good for those that we pray. It's good for us to lift them up before God and pray for them. In fact, one of the most loving things that you can do for another human being is lift them up before God in prayer. Did you know that? One of the most loving things that you can do for another human being is take their name and go right before the throne of grace and lift them up before God and pray for them. Which, by the way, is another reason why we ought to pray for our enemies and those we don't like. Jesus said to love your enemies. Right? That's what he said. One of the most important ways you can, you can love your enemies without actually having to, having to go like have lunch with them, right? One of the most important ways that you can love your enemies is to pray for them. Praying for them is good for them. But praying for them is also good for you. Because it changes you. Because praying for them is an act of obedience. It's an act of submission to God and His will. It's also good for you because it honors God in your life. And it sanctifies you. It's also good because it pleases God. That's what it says. It pleases God that we obey Him. It is pleasing to God that we are turning to Him in faith to pray for these people. Because what we're doing is we're acknowledging our weakness and our dependence upon God to change hearts and to, give, and, and, to, and to give us the ability to live at peace. It pleases God that we pray this way because praying like this is an act of worship. Did you know that? Praying for our enemies and praying for our leaders, especially the ones we don't like, is an act of worship because what we're saying, Lord, is you are worthy. That's the heart of worship is that God is worthy. You were worthy of me setting aside my personal feelings about this person. Lord, you were worthy of my obedience when I don't understand how praying for them is going to make a difference in the world around me. Praying for all kinds of people pleases God because it is an act of worship to Him. It also pleases God because God desires all kinds of people to be saved. You see, God has ordained that those who would be saved would be reached by the gospel through his people. You see, God not only ordains the ends, but he also ordains the means. And God has ordained that the gospel would reach those who, who get saved by the proclamation of the word of God and by seeing in us the light of Christ in our lives and by the efficacious prayers of God's church on the behalf of the lost. We pray for salvation for the lost because God has ordained our prayers to be the means by which the lost are reached. And again, this is one of the mysteries that we don't fully comprehend, but we know to be true. 
We know that God is sovereign and he is the one who brings salvation to his people. But God has ordained that this salvation would be brought to these people through the proclamation of the gospel and through our prayers. You understand that your prayers, our prayers have real power. Your prayers and our prayers have, can affect real change. Do you know why? Because the object of our faith is all-powerful. And God uses our prayers. God himself changes hearts, but he uses our prayers to do so. That's why we say that we are to sow the seed of the gospel. We're to love the people so that they see Christ and pray for God to change their hearts. That's the essence of our mission in life. That's the mission of, of Christians is sow the seed, love the people, and pray for God to change their hearts and never give up. God desires all kinds of people to be saved, and he uses our prayers as a means to accomplish this. Now we know why we should pray, but Paul's going to give us some insight on how we should pray. He gives us some practical instruction here. Now I want you to understand, this isn't a comprehensive how you should pray, but there's some important things that Paul opens our minds to here. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Notice the expression, lifting holy hands here. The thing that we need to realize is when we pray and we bow our heads and close our eyes and clasp our hands, that is not how Christians have been praying throughout the centuries. That was not how the Jews prayed. It's not how the early church prayed. The way that they would pray is they would look to the heavens and they would open their hands up to the Lord is how they would pray. That's the posture that Paul is referring to. Now, we don't have to adopt that, but there's an attitude that comes behind that that Paul's referring to. What Paul is talking about here is when, we, when, when they would pray that way, their hands were open, which means their hands were empty. We're to pray with empty hands. You see, the open hand or the empty prayer hand in prayer signified an attitude of dependence upon God. I have nothing to hold on to but you. My hands are open because I'm seeking you and something from you. I am seeking for God to provide what I need and what I ask. My hands are open before God because I'm expecting for Him to provide what I need. And I'm holding on to nothing else. We're to be praying with an attitude of open hands. We're to pray. We're to come to God with nothing. We don't bring any power to the equation. You, do, you realize that, right? You have no power of your own anyway. Right? We don't bring any power to the equation. We don't bring any instruments to the equation. We don't bring any tools to the equation. Right? And guess what? Our hands are empty because we're holding on to nothing else but Jesus Christ because we have nothing else to hold on to. We ought to go before God with an attitude of dependency and expectance that God will do what He wills to do. We're to pray depending on God and not ourselves. We're to pray expecting that God would do what we ask if what we ask is in accordance to His divine will. Notice he uses the word holy. He says holy hands. The word holy also means consecrated or set apart. Right? What he's saying is, is the idea is that we come to God seeking to do His will. Because we have been made holy. We have been set aside to live for God. Our hands 
are to be set aside to do the work of God. Our attitude is we are willing to be instruments in your hand to do your work, Lord. We pray, in essence, Lord, I'm here. Let your will be done. And so we ought to pray. The way we ought to pray influences. It should be influenced by the spirit of dependence an expectancy and a willingness to be used for the glory of God to accomplish His will. And then he says, I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Years before, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesian church before all the, the, the wheels fell off. And he wrote the letter to remind them of all the blessings they had in Christ and to tell them or to encourage them of how they ought to live in light of those blessings. If you've ever read the, 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 the letter to the Ephesians, that foundation will help you understand exactly where Paul is going. Right? Basically, here's what God's done for you. Now live worthy of what God has done for you. And the, the, the underlying theme of what it meant to live worthy is unity of the body of Christ. Paul was trying to encourage the Ephesian church to be unified. That is how you live worthy of what God has done for you, is to be a part of the body of Christ and be unified in the faith. The theme of unity in the church is an important point that he was driving at in the letter to the Ephesians. Believers are to live together in harmony and unity with one another. They are to build each other up. They are to to care for one another. They are to labor together for the common goal of bringing Christ of the world. In in Ephesians chapter 4, they were to work together and build each other up in love so that they all attain the maturity of the faith. Unity was an important feature of the Ephesian church. But that unity appears to have been lost. When false teachers began to, they took power and brought false doctrine, the unity of the church began to to crumble and the, the Ephesian church began to be plagued by fighting amongst the members of the church in anger and bitterness. Paul in his letters reminded them to come back to the unity. That's why he says, without quarreling, without anger. They're supposed to come back together in unity, especially in their prayer life. They're to come back together as members of the church and as a family and set aside their petty differences and unite under the banner of Christ. And in unity, pray for others. Church family, I think if there is a call to the church today in local congregations individually and then more broadly is that we ought to set aside our petty differences and unite with each other under the banner of Christ and be united in our prayers for the work of the gospel. Unity in prayer right, is important. Right? In fact, even unity is important because the word says the prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. If prayer is powerful coming from one person, how much more powerful is prayer in a united, committed church depending completely on God? We ought to be seeking unity in all things, especially in our prayers. Church family, I want you to hear me on this, okay? Because over the years, right, church members have differences at times. Church members have sometimes things that, that happen between them that sometimes are hard. Sometimes they're really hurtful. 
But we need to seek to find common ground and to have grace for one another and live in unity. If we're going to ever do the things that God's calling us to do, if we're to ever be the church that God is calling us to be, we need to be unified under the gospel of Jesus Christ to where we can come together as family, acknowledge each other as family, hold on to one another as family, and be united in our corporate prayers together. That is the only way that we as the church are going to be together enough to be able to change the world the way God is calling us to be. We've got to be seeking unity. A healthy church is a praying church that is unified. So that's how we are to pray. By the way, but Paul says where we're to pray. Notice in verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place that men should pray. I think that's the easiest of all the things to answer, right? Paul says to pray everywhere. Now, obviously, he's, he's referring to all the little home churches that, that make up the Ephesian church, that we should be, they should be praying at every location. But I think we can broaden that application, that we should, we should pray in church, and we should be praying at home. We should be praying together, and we should be praying alone. You should be praying when you drive your car, just don't close your eyes. It's okay to pray with your eyes open. And we should pray when you're in the break room at work. We should be praying everywhere we go. In fact, our lives ought to be marked by a continual attitude of prayer. As Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now, obviously, we're not going to be continually conversing, but the idea is we keep coming back to God over and over throughout the day, coming back to God in prayer, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is the will. So you won't ever come to me and say, hey, I just want to know what God's will for my life is. This right here. Pray without ceasing. That's God's will for your life. Because a healthy church is a praying church. A healthy church is made up of healthy members. And a healthy church and healthy church members are praying church members. You understand the connection there? So then, let me exhort you now to not allow yourselves to drift with respect to this spiritual discipline of prayer but rather anchor yourself to the Word of God and walk in obedience with, with me and the rest of this church and pray. And pray all kinds of prayers. Pray for all kinds of people. And pray for all kinds of reasons. But let us be committed as a church to unity in prayer and let us pray not just for the needs of the members, but also for peace and for the salvation of the leaders of our nation and pray for those that, we're going to, that we struggle to even want to pray for. Let us be a healthy church because we are a praying church. Now, finally, I just want to wrap up because I, I don't want to miss an opportunity to talk about the foundation on which we stand when we pray, which is the gospel, by the way. Paul says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. 
The foundation on which we pray, the foundation on which we stand, the foundation by which we live, the foundation by which we have unity, no matter what our color of our skin is, no matter what our economic opportunities are, no matter what our, what our genders may be. The common ground, the footing that we stand on is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice it says that those who are saved come to the knowledge of the truth. Brothers and sisters, we must continually stand on that foundation and insist upon that foundation. That those who come to faith in Christ do so because they heard the gospel and they know something they didn't know before. And Paul is telling you and telling them what they need to know, that there is one God in heaven. There's not multiple gods, there is but one. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He created all things, including us, and He created us to have a relationship with Him. But because of our sin, we have been separated from Him. But then He says there is one mediator between God and man. There is one person who can reconcile us, and that is the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there's not multiple ways into heaven. There's not multiple different people we can talk to. There is but one mediator between God and man. And it is not anybody else but Jesus Christ himself who came into the world born of a virgin, who lived the perfect life that we ourselves were required to live, but we can't live because of our sin nature. He lived the perfect life securing for us a righteousness that is not our own. Right? And then not only that then, he went to the cross and willingly took upon himself our sins and took upon himself the wrath of God and paid our debt in full so that by faith our sins are wiped clean, and then in addition to that, we are then clothed with the righteousness of Christ that we can stand before God without fear and come boldly before the throne of grace and make our petitions to God directly. And the way that we avail ourselves of all of that is by faith in Christ and Christ alone. And my call is continually to anyone and everyone to repent and believe the gospel. And the promise is that if you will do that, you will be saved. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.